John chapter 11, reading the first 22 verses. The death of Lazarus. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill, so the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of the world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who was also called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. John chapter 11, reading verses 23 to 44. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Jesus weeps. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were there with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus raises Lazarus to life. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, there already is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus looked upwards and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Thanks be to God for his word. You may not realise this because I'm told that I hide it a lot of the time, but I am somebody who has deep emotions. I feel things profoundly. I get hurt, I have my insecurities. The things that happen to me and those that I care about, which includes the congregation here at Bloomsbury, can affect me greatly. You may not often see me cry, but it does happen. More likely, you will see that momentary flash of frustration when I feel misunderstood or misrepresented or a moment of silence when my spirit is stirred and I don't trust my voice to keep steady. But please hear and know that beneath all this, 
is just someone longing to be loved, wanting to help, and trying to make a difference in the lives of those around me. Now, why, you might wonder, is Simon starting a sermon in this way? Surely it goes against all the advice about keeping a sermon about Jesus rather than about the preacher. Well, it comes from a conversation I had this week with my spiritual director, who invited me to reflect on a question. What might Jesus want to say to me? So I'm sharing my thoughts, my response to this question, because I hope it might stir similar engagement for you as you listen to me reflecting on this. And I think it would also help us reflect on our scripture passage for this morning. What might Jesus want to say to me? What might Jesus want to say to you? My answer to my spiritual director fell into two areas. Firstly, what might Jesus want to say to me about the things that I do? And then secondly, more deeply, what might Jesus want to say to who I am, to my spirit, to my soul? What might Jesus want to say to you about the things that you do? And what might Jesus want to say to you about who you are, to your spirit, to your soul? The difficulty with answering questions such as these, of course, is that if we are to avoid simply putting our own words into the mouth of Jesus and then asking him to say them back to us, we have to turn to scripture, to the gospels, to see who Jesus is, what he said, and what he did. And it occurred to me that we don't, something we don't often see with Jesus is him expressing his emotions. Mostly, if we read through the Gospels, Jesus bounces around the Holy Land, delivering these stupendous sermons, responding pastorally to the needy, challenging systems of oppression, and calling out religious hypocrisy. He seems to make enemies with ease, and then not mind when they turn on him in anger and threaten his safety. Well, it's all a bit intimidating, if I'm honest. As someone who preaches, offers pastoral care and speaks out against injustice, it's an awful lot to measure up to, particularly when people live annoyed or upset start to bite back. But more broadly, however, I also sense some encouragement here. What might Jesus say to me about the things that I do? Well, hopefully, he'd tell me to carry on, to try harder, to keep going, to not be discouraged, to say, well, I'll see you down at Parliament Square on the 30th and let's stick it to the politicians and get some justice for the underprivileged. We are, as the old hymn puts it, to fight the good fight with all our might. We are to keep on keeping on to take heart and not grow weary. The path we tread in this world is not new ground because Jesus does go before us to show us the way. And for a church like Bloomsbury, for people like us, we have an activist spirit, don't we? A church like Bloomsbury kind of feels hardwired to engage in actions that make good news a reality for people whose lives are dominated by bad news. 
The activist example then of Jesus that we see in scripture is an encouragement and an inspiration, which is all great right up until that moment when we hit the wall. But what happens when we're derailed? What happens when we're thrown off course? Or when we just run out of steam altogether? My suspicion is that this is where many of us find ourselves right now. At the limit of our energy and our emotional capacity. The upheaval of the pandemic and the changes it has wrought in so many areas of our lives. Coupled with the horrific news that streams into our consciousness hour by hour from the Ukraine, added to the profound uncertainties many of us feel about the future as we grapple with the rising cost of living, fears of escalation in international conflict, the news about climate change and the ever-growing needs of the poor and the vulnerable in our own city. All this and so much more has left many of us in a place of emotional exhaustion, overwhelming grief and paralyzing fear. It's like we're stuck in the darkness of a sealed cave with our hands and legs bound and our eyes covered. Which brings me to our reading this morning from John's Gospel and the story of the death of Lazarus. This is the moment when in the fourth Gospel, Jesus hits his own emotional wall. It's in chapter 11 that Jesus finally breaks down and loses the plot for a while and stares death and despair in the face. Verse 35, that verse beloved of church quizzes, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? John 11:35. Jesus wept. Those two simple words capture a whole world of pain for him. Yes, Jesus is weeping because his beloved friend has died, but he is also moved to tears by the emotions of those around him, as Mary and the other Jews are crying in their grief. It's a bit like that moment you get sometimes at a funeral, where one person starts weeping and then that sets off others as well, until you have a communal outpouring of sorrow and grief. The sad truth, for those of us raised in British culture at least, is that we can struggle with such public displays of emotion. I remember being told at school time after time, big boys don't cry, Woodman. And many of us have learned over the years to suppress our emotions, to keep it all inside, to bottle it up. And yet, as we see in the story of the death of Lazarus, communal expression of emotion can be the precursor to something wonderful. Many years ago now, in my first church, 
we had a child in the fellowship who had developed cancer. It was terrible. It was heartbreaking. Her young life hung in the balance. We had been praying for her and supporting the family for weeks since the diagnosis, and of course, supporting them in a number of ways. But somehow it didn't seem real, emotionally real. We knew that it was happening at an intellectual and practical level, but we hadn't, as a congregation, owned it emotionally. And then in open prayer one Sunday, my colleague lifted up his voice and started shouting to God that this situation was intolerable. He told God that it was utterly unacceptable that a child should be facing death and that despite all of our prayers and all of the skill of the medical profession, she remained gravely ill. He continued for a couple of minutes, tears rolling down his cheeks, articulating before God the raw emotion and rage and impotence that we all felt. It was like watching a psalm taking form before us. Many of us joined him in tears and somehow in that moment which, as you can tell, is still with me two decades later. The communal owning of our grief opened the door to a new world of hope. As we entrusted our fears of the future to a God that we dared to believe, was a God of love. As we entrusted a little girl's short life to God's eternal loving embrace. Another more recent example, which some of you have shared with me from Bethlehem in 2018, when we made our last Bloomsbury visit to the Holy Land. Each evening back at the hotel, we sat around to process what we had seen that day. A wall that divides a community. Children that have been shot at. A refugee camp. A city under siege. Evidence of illegal weapons. shouldn't have gone there. Several times we found ourselves crying together, holding the pain in communion before God, hardly daring to believe that a better future might ever exist for those whose lives have been blighted by war. And tomorrow I shall be going to join a vigil at King's College London and we will stand in solidarity and in prayer and in hope for the people of the Ukraine. And yes, I'll probably shed tears again then too. Crying with others and for others is profoundly 
a Christ-like action. And somehow, before God, tears of despair can become tears of hope, tears of resistance. In a world where in Christ, death does not get the final word on life. Death does not get the final word on life. But there is another dimension for us to explore in this shortest verse of the Bible. Yes, Jesus wept in grief at the death of his friend. And he wept in solidarity with others. But maybe also here we find Jesus weeping for himself. The fourth gospel doesn't include the story of Jesus in Gethsemane, sweating blood at the prospect of his imminent death. Instead, it is here at the tomb of Lazarus that Jesus confronts the reality of his own mortality. It's no coincidence that we're reading this story in the season of Lent as we make our own annual pilgrimage towards the cross. The story of the death of Lazarus is carefully constructed by the author of this gospel as a precursor to the story of Jesus' own death which follows it. The Lazarus narrative is the final of John's seven signs. And as with each of the other signs, it points beyond itself to a revelation of the kingdom of Christ. So as Jesus makes his way to his friend's tomb, he's also taking decisive steps towards his own death and he weeps. And this is no divinely disconnected being emotionlessly floating through life on his way to somewhere else. This is rather the word made flesh. A human being confronting his own frailty and contemplating death. And it is in this context that we find Jesus pondering the meaning of life. It starts with his conversation with Martha as they debate the nature of resurrection. And it seems Martha is of the view that resurrection is some future event for people to look forward to. She says, I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And in this, she was expressing a view common in Judaism at the time. And in fact, this is a view found amongst many Christians today also. The idea has its origins in the philosophical question of how to justify the goodness of God in the face of a world where bad things happen to good people. Many atheists point to the existence of pointless suffering as a key factor in their disbelief in God. And one possible answer to this is the one articulated by Martha, which is that it all gets sorted out when we die. Sure, she would say, in this world, some people die young and tragically, but they'll get their heavenly reward at the resurrection. And sure, some people commit terrible deeds and seem to get away with it, but they'll get their comeuppance on the last day at the final judgment. It's highly compelling, it's quite logical, and many of us will have been taught this or something very similar to it. The problem, however, is that this isn't what Jesus means when he talks about resurrection. In reply to Martha, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And it's worth our while spending a few moments unpicking this to get to the heart of what is going on in the story of Lazarus's death. Firstly, we can note that it's another one of those I am sayings that we've met before in John's Gospel. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the water of life. These are these places where Jesus deliberately echoes the words spoken by God to Moses when Moses asked for God's name. I am who I am, said the Lord. I am, says Jesus, positioning himself as the revelation of God, the word of God made flesh. And then we get these two concepts, the resurrection and the life. We would be mistaken to think that these are simply two different ways of saying precisely the same thing, as if the life was a synonym for the resurrection. Rather, Jesus uses these two terms to provide a different perspective on the meaning of life in the face of suffering to that just offered by Martha. For Martha, the resurrection was something future, something that comes after life. But what Jesus wants people to grasp is that in him, through his human embodiment of God's divine nature, the resurrection is something that people can be part of in the here and now of this life. If you remember one of the key concepts of John's gospel articulated clearly in the opening prologue that we looked at back before Christmas is this phrase that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in today's reading from this central chapter of the gospel, we discover that the final decisive revealing sign of God's kingdom is the reality of resurrection. Here we get to discover what it means for us, that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. The abundance of life that is in Jesus is ours today. The assurance of death defeated and life without end is ours in the here and now. We do not need to wait until this life has ended for eternal life to begin. Quite the opposite. Rather, eternal life is ours now as death's hold over our lives is broken. Did you notice what Jesus said as Lazarus came out of the tomb, still bound in his grave clothes? Verse 44, unbind him and let him go. And I wonder what binds you. What is it that constrains your freedom, covers your eyes, shackles your movements or your emotions? What hold does death have over you from which you long to be released? What fears hamper us? What sins hold us back? What damage done to us scars our present and our future? Well, hear this. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the one who reveals God's abundant life to us, who calls us forth from our tombs to a new life of love in community and hope in life. 
This is an invitation for us to center the reality of resurrection at the heart of our faith and our lives. People often place the cross at the heart of their faith, focusing on the significance of the death of Jesus as the key theological truth of his life. But I think John's gospel invites us to a different perspective. It centers the resurrection. The indwelling of God in human flesh is a gift of life. To be experienced by each of us today, here and now. This life matters because in Christ God is present in our lives today, here and now calling us from the tomb, unbinding our ankles and our hands, lifting the grave clothes from our eyes. As the gospel puts it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. Thank you, Simon, for that very moving reflection. Let's pause for a few minutes and then we'll discuss it as a panel. Thanks. I'd like to invite our panellists to join us now to talk about uh, responses to uh, what we've heard. Thank you. Simon raised two questions at the beginning. What would Jesus say to us? What would he say to us about the things that we do? What would Jesus say to us about who we are? What's your feeling about those questions? I was particularly struck by the life and resurrection is here and now. And I think it changes the perspective one has on what is the meaning of life and what, what are we here for? Is it better now? Okay, so I, I said I was struck by um, the message that life and resurrection is, is here and now. And the here and now, I think, changes the perspective on what what we're here for. I, I grew up in, a, in the sort of Christian tradition that, you know, centered Christian life on that deferred event of resurrection and, and life being the way to unlock that, that door and, 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 and all of that making this quite a, in a way, quite a self-centered um, pursuit. I'm not sure I'm completely comfortable with the notion of, of resurrection. It's something that I 
struggle with uh, somewhat. But I think to actually bring it back and say, actually, this is not, this is here and now, I think. All right. Um, uh, first, I'd like to thank Simon for a very moving and beautiful sermon and for offering us this uh, glimmer of hope in these uh, very difficult times. I think it's important to share emotions. Um, right now, there is, of course, the sense of uh, crying together, but also sometimes sense of anger at, that we could do more to welcome people who try to come over, and it's so difficult for them to come. Um, and I think the sense of community is very important there too. So that was my view for today. Thank you. Jeff, I wonder where the ideas around resurrection and rebirth or the difference between life and resurrection, where, where, where did that take you in your thought process in response to Simon's sermon? Okay, first thing, can you hear me? Yes, we can. We can hear you clearly. Brilliant. I've said lots of times that the gospel's for this life, not the next. So that's consistent with the sermon. This may fit my desire of a statement for the gospel for the 21st century, but it does not fit a gospel for the dying. I haven't resolved that, and I'm not sure it's resolvable. Although I do think that the resolution is about a gospel for all rather than the individual. And when it came to um, what would Jesus say to me, I didn't think about what I would do. It says, what would Jesus say to think me about the things I think? Because I find, you know, most of the time I'm trying to think. <laughs> and, and he might object and he might agree. I don't know, but the conversation would be interesting. So that's where I went. Very interesting. I personally, I, 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 I thought Jean-Marc's comment, it was daunting, was the phrase that came to me. I feel a bit daunted by uh, the current situation. And I say that as a person who's been writing news for all my professional career. I mean, you know, since I was young, you know, it was my job to round up the worst things that had happened in the last hour and put them into a bulletin for the radio or something like that. Where's the accidents been? Where have the deaths been? Where's the war raging? Um, so I, I am kind of used to collecting the bad news and taking a good hard look at it. And, um, you know, again, as a newspaper writer and reader, uh, I'm quite used to turning the pages of the accidents and disasters and human suffering you know, to the crosswords and the tips for the races and the horoscopes. <laughs> Not so much the horoscopes, actually, to be fair. But, <laughs> but this does seem different to me because of the intensity and the scale of the um, situation that's unfolding in Ukraine um, and the potential for escalation is the real terror, isn't it? I wonder whether you can help me with what was on my mind in preparing for the service, which is 
is there any point in praying about it? Hasn't everybody been praying about it for weeks? Are we making, is that something that we need to do? Where's the message of hope and resurrection in, in the face of this intensifying war? I'll, I'll come back a little on that. Um, I'll come back a little on that and say, if you talk to a Calvinist, they think God has a plan and you will fulfill that plan at every moment. Um, that tends to work when you're looking back through the events in your life. Doesn't work for planning forward. I tend to argue that God calls you forward from where you are at that moment. And then the plan is worked out from there forward. So there's not a fixed plan. The plan changes according to where you start from. And that sort of fits with some of the, 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 the wars and the things. As you get involved, you get to a point that you never expected to, and you certainly didn't think it was planned. And you are called forward from there. Does that help? I think it does. I think it does in my personal life. I think that's a, that's a helpful message, Jeff, it is, to, to move forward. I think there is a sense. I think there is, I think there is a sense to, to pray for it. There is also, but that, that doesn't mean we shouldn't also act for it. And I think, I think we need we need to do both and, and we all can in various uh, in various ways uh, you know it might be world leaders and decision makers it might be the organization i work for as it happens or it might be welcoming refugees or it might be a word of comfort to someone that is feeling very anxious about the situation and i think yes we need prayer and yes we need action here and now thank you Thank you. Yes, thank you very much indeed for your contribution. A combination of prayer and action seems a very suitable response. Welcome to Marceau. Please go ahead. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful God, we gather before you this morning with heavy hearts and tearful eyes as we confront the horrors of war and face a period of turmoil and sorrow as a result. May your voice be heard amidst the chaos, the pain, the brutality and the angst that surround us. May the sacrifice and resurrection of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, remind us that death's hold over us can be broken, that earthly empires are bound to fall, and that darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. O oh Lord, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The temptation to keep ourselves aloof 
from the appalling realities of war as if our relative safety, wealth, and strength, for which we are grateful, granted us the right to be indifferent to the suffering of others, as if the physical distance from explosions and gunfire allowed us to develop a sense of moral distance May we refuse to be bystanders and to grow estranged from our brothers and sisters living far away. May we feel we are diminished by every death, by every cloud washed away by the sea, as well as if our manner or that of our friends and fellow citizens were, for no man is an island entire of itself. O oh Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The temptation to deny that war breeds hate, hate breeds violence, and violence poisons and scars the soul. In yearning for a just peace, in denouncing the slaughter of civilians, in taking a stand on behalf of those who are attacked today. May we avoid the many pitfalls involved in the idea that gaining the upper end is the only way to settle disputes. And in the illusion that the price of victory might be cheap May we be conscious of the dangers in the final push mentality that so many political and military leaders, including some of the best and the brightest, slip into throughout past conflicts. What if, they thought, waging one more assault allows us to achieve the decisive breakthrough what if resorting to one more deadly weapon from our massive arsenals destroys the morale of the enemy for good? What if silencing one more critical voice hardens our resolve to fight to the bitter end? What if imposing one more sanction leads ordinary people to revolt against the ruthless government? What if arming one more country or issuing one more threat ultimately deters the other side from retaliating? What if holding on one more day? What if firing one more shot? What if deploying one more soldier? What if? And so, as nations plunge deeper and deeper into the perverse logic of war, their people came closer and closer to embracing and worshipping the beast, forgetting about their obligations, toward one another and toward God. May we be spared the ordeal of having to go through this all over again. O oh Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The temptation to persuade ourselves that emotions are a source of weakness, 
that the strong will inherit the land, that there is never a right time or a right way to be touched by the better angels of our nature. In a world where, as Jeremiah said, each pursues their own course like a horse charging into battle, may we embark on a different path in building our common future. With your help, by your grace, may we succeed. Amen. May our hearts be filled with the compassion of our Lord Jesus, who wept at loss and pain. May the powerful call of resurrection interrupt the screams of death. And may the bells of the cathedrals keep ringing in Moscow, in Kiev, in London, this Sunday morning and evermore. Amen.